The following episode contains graphic details of a violent crime. This episode will have content pertaining to a suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. If you have had suicidal thoughts or suffer from PTSD, this episode may not be for you. If you find the things you hear become a trigger for you, please contact your nearest crisis center or National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Murder, Land Between the Lakes. This is the second part to episode five of this week. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. We have some new information that we're going to share with you this week. So thanks for tuning in. Every tip and comment we receive, these names keep coming up. They were responsible for the investigation at the time of the murders, is what we understand today. Um, So we wanted to take some time to share with you what we know about David Hicks and Jack Charlton. Unfortunately, Jack Charlton is no longer with us, and David Hicks is not healthy, so neither of them have been able to share information directly with us. But we wanted to give you a bit of background because... Um, of the roles that they played within the murder investigation. So to start off, David Hicks, he was a native of Stewart County. Um, He graduated from Stewart County High in 1969. And after that, he worked on the riverboat docks as a deckhand for about seven years. Um, So after that, we understand that he was a deputy. um, And he was a deputy for about two years when he actually was promoted or elected into the office of sheriff in 1978. So an interesting tidbit about that is that when he was elected sheriff in 1978, he was the youngest sheriff ever elected in the state of Tennessee. Um, So that was pretty impressive. I'm not sure actually the requirements to become sheriff, but he, um, he definitely made a mark, I guess, at a young age. Um, from there, he did become a TBI agent. He was promoted into, um, the TBI, I guess it's a promotion, but he, um, he moved over into the TBI and he worked on the drug task force directly under Jack Charlton. So also, too, there was also some problems that came along um, with this 23rd uh, Judicial Task Force. There was um, a thing that they, I guess it was called policing for profits. So a couple of things happened. Um, One particular incident happened with David Hicks. Um, Mr. Hicks had pulled over, um, had stopped a guy in December of 2011, and the task force seized approximately $160,000 from a New York businessman. And the officer who sees the cash admitted it probably wasn't even drug money. And, you know, eventually this businessman sued the federal government and settled out of court for $155,000. And this, this hearing um, on the 23rd District um, Task Force operations uh, by the Tennessee State Senate um, subcommittee that led um, Tennessee State Senators, you know, 
to ask the head of the 23rd District Task Force, David Hicks, they asked him about the $160,000, and Hicks claimed that the money was related to terrorism. Um, he claimed that the officers seized the money because they thought the man was a terrorist. And Hicks did not present evidence of proving the allegations, and Hicks also admitted that the officer involved in the seizure um, did that he did have financial incentive to take the cash. Yeah, so when Hicks responded to the questions about whether his agency was policing for profit, um, with the new claims, the agents are really taking money out of the hands of terrorists. While there's absolutely no evidence that the terrorism claim is true, the task force director ended up inadvertently conceding that interstate interdiction units do indeed have a profit motive. Um, Quote, you said if the money is not there, they could potentially lose their jobs or they could potentially lose their bonuses, unquote, um, from the Senator Stacey Campfield toward the end of the hearing. And as the Senate Judiciary Committee opened hearings on Tennessee's Drug Task Force, the spotlight quickly focused on the 23rd, which operates along that I-40 in Dickinson County area, which um, Hicks was responsible for. Um, I know very little about interdiction, admitted David Hicks. Um, Hicks directs the task force that receives so much attention from News Channel 5's policing for profit investigation. And his testimony had senators shaking their heads. I had a hard time understanding why somebody would come to the to testify before us who didn't have any answers to the questions we asked, said the, the subcommittee chairman. So it was just really interesting that there was this um, pretty prevalent, I guess, policing for profit um, process going on within that area where money was being taken from people who may or may not. Uh, be be dealing drugs. So I, we found that just very interesting that that was all happening um, at the time that, that David Hicks was involved. So this is just giving you a little bit of color into to what was happening during his time um, as sheriff. There was actually a, a, a lot on this from News Channel 5. And, and some of that article actually came from News Channel 5 also. But there was a huge investigation done by them. If you actually you can Google it and see many of the articles. And um, there was actually John Oliver, the nightly news host. He had a huge episode about policing for profit, not only in Tennessee, but across the United States. And it was actually really upsetting, like what was going on. But Hicks's um, event that took place was actually part of that John Oliver um, episode. So to, um, we'll, we'll post the link. And it's actually, um, I recommend you uh, watch it. It's a little um, upsetting. But um, one other thing um, I wanted to bring up is um, Hicks was demoted after that. Uh, back to, um, he was demoted as a TBI um, agent. And I don't, he wasn't sent back down as sheriff. So I'm really not sure what his position was after that. And then he was retired um, after, he retired after 30 years, eight years of service in law enforcement, retired in 1996. Yeah. And then also on top of that, there's an interesting avenue of looking at the background of David Hicks that he's been involved or at least um, on the periphery of several suicides. So, you know, I think we had mentioned in a previous episode, uh, Tim Webb and his suicide. And David Hicks was actually the first on the scene um, after Tim Webb committed suicide, which we, you know, just found very interesting. 
there was another situation where there was an inmate um, while he was responsible for this inmate that committed suicide. This fellow's name was Heflin, Alan D. Heflin. Um, and he was deemed, it was deemed that he committed suicide while he was in the shower. But when he was found, he was found hanging with his feet and hands tied and um, uh, uh, material stuffed in his mouth. So it just seemed from the scene that the, the allegation of suicide was a really, really far stretch that somebody could commit suicide with their hands and feet bound and something stuffed into their mouth. Um, and there was one more too, right, Amelia? Um, there wasn't, you know, it was just, you know, we wanted to bring up a couple of things that... I guess questionable things that were brought into the county at the time Hicks and um, Charlton were responsible for um, the safety of everyone in the community. But there was a, a mysterious death um, that happened in, um, let's see, let me, what year was it? 1978, uh, there was a death of a man that someone brought to our attention, it was actually sent to us, and um, the mysterious death of a man named Ray George. Um, and Ray was um, shot and killed um, outside of his restaurant. He's a restaurant owner, and he received a phone call um, one night, and he told his wife he had to go to the restaurant to collect some money from someone, and he was shot outside his restaurant. And it was noted that um, it was a professional shot into the, you know, to the head, and it was just an unsolved murder. And th that's why we bring it up. It was just unsolved, and no one really um, tried to solve this murder as well. And um, it was just noted that this person that wrote us in, you know, wrote us a note stated, um, and I just thought this was like kind of telling, you know, that underneath this sheriff and underneath this TBI agent that all, you know, lived in Dover and Stewart County. Um, this person said, um, if you wanted to kill someone, dump them in Dover and you'll never be found. <laughs> so I think, very I, telling. I, I think these are, yeah, I know. And I think we're just touching on a few of the things that happened in Dover. I think there were, you know, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, we, you know, um, you know, Carla and Vicky's unsolved murder, you know, and now we have this Ray George, you know, we have the mysterious, um, you know, suicide hanging. I mean, you know, I don't know how you, um, you know, hang yourself, you know, with your hands and feet bound and your a gag in your mouth. Um, and I, that went to court as well, actually. Um, the family of Heflin, um, of Alan Heflin sued, um, you know, Stewart County and, you know, David Hicks is named in that as well. Um, he was one of the ones that came into the, um, into the cell when he was hanging and he wouldn't cut him down. Um, so I don't know what the, I, I tried to read some of that case and I think there were a lot of, um, <laughs> there was a lot of rules on whether or not you cut someone hanging hanging or not, but there was speculation whether or not he still had, a, this, this guy had a pulse or not. So the doctor that came to the scene, I think there was still, I think the rule has changed since then, whether or not you cut an inmate down and try to revive them. So there's a certain amount of time, whether or not someone can still be revived. And, but it, it's still like just crazy to me that there's, there wasn't a lot that went into this court case about the, the fact that this guy was bound by his hands and his feet and gagged. So I, I, you know, there's just a lot of iffy and questionable things surrounding it. So that's why we went into that. But now, Lainey, why don't you go on and tell us a little bit more about Jack Charlton's history? Yeah, so Jack Charlton, um, was born in 1926, and he actually passed away in 2001. Um, but he was a highway patrol person. Um, he was a patrolman in 1953 for the Tennessee Highway Patrol. And in 
and he was a trooper for 13 years. And then he was promoted to the TBI as a criminal investigator around September of 1966. And he spent the rest of his career at the TBI. So he was a lifer at the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. um, And he retired at 55. As the TBI um, investigator, he covered three counties. He, He covered Houston County, Humphreys County, and Stewart County. He also lived in Dover and raised his family there. He had two girls and a boy um, in which were born and raised in Dover. And um, the, a couple of interesting things about Jack. I'll be honest with you. We found a lot more information in our investigation around David Hicks than Jack Charlton. Um, the one interesting thing about Jack tied to this case specifically is that the evidence that was pertaining to the case of the missing um, and murdered girls was actually in Jack's car at the time that it went missing. So he was the last person to actually have the evidence for the case in possession before the evidence was stolen or went missing. Um, So we found that pretty interesting. and that's really, I mean, as far as, you know, as far as Jack goes, that's that's the most information that we have right now on him. Of course, again, if anybody listening has some further detail about Jack Charlton and who he was, please feel free to reach out to us and, um, and share what you know. We're always listening. And, um, and then next, we wanted to actually talk about... Um, the day the bodies were found at Land Between the Lakes. Hey listeners, we just wanted to take a quick break to say thank you for listening in. It is because of you, Murder at Land Between the Lakes has had almost 7,000 listens in over 15 countries. Carla and Vicky's story can no longer be ignored. Their story will be told for years to come, and hopefully justice for the family and this community will come even sooner. Um, So actually, you know, we wanted to get into the day the bodies were found a little bit at Land Between the Lakes because... Amelia, I believe you had a conversation with um, a gate agent that was working the day the bodies were found there, correct? I did. I actually just spoke with her about an hour ago. Um, I spoke with um, a lady that was working there that day. And, you know, it's been still like, you know, like everyone we speak to, it's been 40, almost 40 years since it happened. So, um, but she does remember she has really great recollection of a few things and some things I haven't, you know, heard yet. So, um, I'd like to share some of that with you. One of the things like she really remembers is the fact that when it all happened, um, the first thing that happened was, you know, the TBI came in and well, the first people on the scene, as we know, was the sheriff's department. And that consisted of Albert Byers, and a man named, a deputy named John Vincent. They were the first two on the scene. And then next um, came David Hicks, who was still at the Sheriff's Department at the time, and TBI agent Jack Charlton. So they came 
like speeding up and like they came up and like drove their truck up to the scene and immediately they made all of the agents or all of the police that you know the federal police that work at the land between the lakes leave they were totally and they're actually federal police there so i'm asking all these questions i'm like so they're not just like your regular like rangers like you know park rangers and and not diminishing a park rangers position um there but these guys were fe- like actually federal police but they were made to leave the scene and so like a few of them would come into her you know gate like into her booth and you know one particular guy told her like he you know said things are not things are really weird out there and i'm glad i'm not going to be part of this and so he wanted to leave he was glad he was being told to leave but one particular guy who actually also worked with the sheriff's department and land between the lakes he got to stay because they wanted someone representing the land between the lakes to stay and he was a, a guy named um, a deputy by the name of uh, Jerry Dorch. So he was the third of, of this three of these three men. So let's just call them like um, they're like a group of three men: Jerry Dorch, David Hicks, and Jack Charlton. So they were the three kind of running the scene. But mm-hmm. she said in particular, Jack Charlton was running the show. And so um, he told everyone to collect everything at the scene. So it was really done, you know, I guess like miss. I mean, haphazardly. So they collect beer bottles, they collect cigarettes, cigarette boxes. Like, it just when I, I think what she meant by like, you know, haphazardly, like no, you know, no precautions were taken in collecting it. So, so they weren't like putting it in evidence bags. They weren't handling it with gloves, that kind of thing. No, right? it was all put in a, in one big bag and thrown in the back of um, his patrol car. So it was all just like put in one big bag, thrown in the back of his, you know, patrol car. And, um, and I, the biggest piece that she told me was that there was also a blanket found. Ooh. So again, I mean, now this blanket could have been left by a hiker at some point. Like maybe it's been there forever. I mean, it's been there for, you know, years. I don't know. But then there was also on top of the blanket, a shirt found. So... It wasn't, you know, it didn't belong to the girls. It was just a shirt. It didn't say if it was a male's, if it was a female's, but it was just a shirt. So there was a shirt, you know, and I asked, I said, did they say if it had blood on it, if it had anything on it? She said she didn't know. Um, but, you know, they told her there was a shirt and a blanket, and it was also put in the bag and put in the back of the um, patrol car. And I'm assuming this is some of the evidence that was never seen again. Correct. Because that's not, I mean, as far as we know, unless we're, you know, unless we have misinformation and someone can correct us at any point, um, that's not like in any evidence locker. Hmm. So they, you know, um, people, she was one of the only ones that would have, you know, access to a phone. So they would come in and make, you know, phone calls, but no one had, um, you know, access to, you know, any other outside, you know, phone call, you know, phones, because, you know, obviously there wasn't cell phones then, but, um, you know, she was able to like, you know, hear things going on. She knew things weren't right. Like things were very quiet. Things were moving really fast as well. So, and remind you, there wasn't a lot of people around then, like yet it was, it, this all happened fast. Yeah. So Amelia, it's interesting that the federal agents or the FBI never really were involved in this case from the beginning. TBI and the sheriff's department pretty much 
took it over immediately and assumed control, right? Oh, yeah, actually, it's, it's funny you said it. So she and I talked about that as well. And I was gonna, I'm gonna bring on um, a history buff, one of my old school teachers. I'm gonna bring him on as well to see if I can get some more information on that. Um, Land Between the Lakes is, you know, federal property. Um, it was actually named by John F. Kennedy. Um, it is federal property, so the girls' bodies was, you know, found on federal property. And so I guess the big question is, I think it's been brought up by many people, why wasn't it, um, you know, deemed a federal case from the very beginning? I don't know what the exact protocol is on why, you know, FBI didn't take it from the beginning. I think usually the FBI has to be, has to be asked to be brought in. But if it's on federal property from the beginning, I don't know if it's immediately considered, you know, deemed a federal case. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. No, that's good. We can follow up on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, that was, you know, a, you know, a good call to get and a good, you know, um, interesting um, information to receive because I haven't heard any of that yet. And, you know, and like we said, um, you know, every bit of information we get, it's important. And it's like, you know, another piece of our puzzle. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful call to have. Um, the next thing that we wanted to just cover off on a little bit in this episode was the the sketch and the sketch artist who um, put together the composite of the, the driver of the blue truck from the eyewitness. Um, now, we know that it's been a recent topic about around some of the locals, um, the facial composite and the artist. Um, you know, we know that the eyewitness gave a description of the man in the blue truck. It was probably quite a bit away from the driver. Um, but there is a potential. I think we, we may have some information that the, the actual eyewitness may have thought that they knew the driver of the truck probably knew what the driver of the truck really did look like gave a pretty accurate description of the driver of the truck and we know that forensic artists are actually trained to to actually take into consideration all of the details and put together a sketch that is as close to possible of what an eyewitness would see so although you know there can definitely be um challenges in interpreting that we think that the, the sketch artist did a, a decent job from what we understand and um, was a very like well-trained sketch artist and that, um, that, you know, that, that sketch was something that was at least we believe published once in the Paris newspaper, but was never published in Stewart County that we can come across um, evidence of. Yeah, I think, I, I wonder why, that's actually a very good question to try to figure out why it wasn't published more locally. Um, but I do agree with you, Lainey, like that's what a, a sketch artist is trained to do, is like when someone, when an eyewitness sees something, a forensic artist is trained to do, to recreate an image that someone is giving them from their brief encounter, right? So they, you know, give them maybe options, you know, was their hair dark or light? they have a big forehead small forehead so they don't you know it's not like I, I they do a great job of helping them recollect you know a brief encounter so mm -hmm. I think it was probably a, a pretty good job of the sketch so I you know I think um there's a lot I think people have there's a lot of speculation about who that person could have been and you know I think 
it could have looked like a lot of people if you put you know side by side pictures um, of who that could have been. Yeah, and that, there's also been some speculation I think around the blue truck and the driver of the blue truck was that person actually a suspect or were they more of a witness um, just because they might have been one of the last people to see the girls alive. However, I mean I think we have some pretty strong evidence with Joe Stout saying the blue truck leaving the scene of the crime that day with blue paint being seen on a tree right near where the bodies were found. Um, It seems that this blue truck may have potentially been involved in more than just being one of the last people who saw the girls when they were talking to the girls on the side of the road. Right. So, and not to like take you down a different rabbit hole or question, you know, the idea of the blue truck, but um, if you think back to like 2002 and you think about the DC sniper that was in town, I, ju- I just listened to this amazing um, audible um, special. It's called uh, Call Me God. And it was about um, the DC sniper and everyone focused on a white van. There was this, uh, an eyewitness that saw a white van. And so for that entire, I think it was a 22 day period, they were all focused on the white van. Every white van was pulled over that's all they were looking for. Well, as it turns out, the, the, the two shooters, the two snipers, were in a blue, I think, Caprice the whole time. They were never in a white van. So they lost all this precious time looking for the white van when they were never in the white van. So, you know, have all the time everybody's been looking for a blue truck and there's never been a blue truck? Is that the case? But again, we don't believe that because as Mr. Stout saw, he saw a blue truck as well. And no, there was blue paint on the, um, you know, the tree. So not taking you down another rabbit hole. But again, you know, you always have to, you know, take those things into consideration. I don't want to start questioning every single little fact or every single piece of information you get. Because if you keep doing that, you're never going to find answers. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, we have to remember, this took place 39 years ago. So, you know, the facts are the facts that we have access to the information that we're able to uncover today a lot of it especially because the evidence is missing is putting together a lot of the details from what our listeners have recalled from that time you know and then hoping that we can uncover some new and critical information that can help us solve this case I, I know exactly. Yeah, you know, and actually, there's a reporter um, there in Dover. Um, his name is David uh, Ross. He's been on this case and been working on it for, gosh, I mean, since the girls went missing. Um, he um, grew up um, in the area and he graduated um, from that area as well. And he's been working, you know, pretty diligently on this case. And he actually has a lot of information. Um, and I interviewed, I interviewed Mr. Ross for the podcast um, here a few weeks ago. And um, I'll put some of his information on here um, when the time's right. But um, he, you know, has a ton of information and um, you can go on his Facebook page. He told me, you know, I could give his link. So if you want to go see some of his information, um, his Facebook page is David R. Ross. And you can go and see, you know, some of his facts as well. Some of the information he has to share. Yeah, he's definitely been sharing a lot of information, especially around the anniversary. So there's a lot of of recent posts that you can access and and see what he has to say. 
yeah and then um oh and also you know there's another group um last year there was a paranormal group um called let me see what do I have? it's called the paranormal patrol and they you know approached the family and they wanted to come and see if they could uh, this is not something you know Lainey and I necessarily condone or, or I don't but maybe you do Lainey I don't know <laughs> how your, your feelings are on a paranormal patrol group um, but they they approached the family and you know wanted to see if they could come and talk to the girls ghosts and see what they could find out so they came for the weekend and all of a sudden they just like packed up and left and like that was like it so the family contacted them and said you know what happened like you know what did you find out and this group you know, just basically said, you know, I'm sorry, we had we had to leave. We can't discuss anything with you. And when the family asked, well, why? What happened? And they said that they were told to stay away from the case, to stay away. And then, you know, when they were asked why, and they said they're not permitted to say that there was a gag order uh, pending. And if they were told um, that we were, if they were told, if we want to continue, we were told to go in a different direction. And, um, you know, the family still to this day wonders why that, you know, and um, they just said they were told they had to leave the town and could not talk about the case at all anymore. Which is kind of crazy because you think if you're scaring away a paranormal group, that's got to be pretty frightening. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I mean, it's, I haven't so far we haven't been told to stay away. So and <laughs> yeah, no, that um, that's so true. Well, well, thank you guys for, for listening to our episode. Um, we're looking forward to bringing you another one as we get more and more information. And again, um, continue to please share anything that you know with Amelia and I, because we, um, we definitely like hearing from our listeners and like trying to figure out if we can get further to the truth. Yeah, we put a lot out there for you guys. Yeah, this was action-packed. Yeah, that was good. All right, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for all of your support, reviews, and five-star ratings. This is an Anchor production, recorded and edited by your host, Lainey Sullivan and Amelia Courtney.